Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tennis with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali, and uh, we've been quiet on this front for the last few weeks, but we have good reason to break the silence. I'm delighted to have one of the big U.S. coaches on the on the ATP tour uh, who's done incredible work to grace this podcast. I'm in the company of Brad Stein. Brad, how are you? I'm doing really well, thank you. Thanks for doing this during a packed tournament schedule. We are in the midst of Sunshine Double. Uh, you are still in California. I'm in Boston. So uh, again, much appreciated to to make this time zone difference work. Uh, yeah, standard, no problem. Yeah, standard start to my podcast or many podcasts is the guest's biography. So just fill the listeners in uh, how you got involved into tennis. And we all know your coaching resume, but, you know, just uh, talk about, you know, your love for the game, your involvement and, uh, you know, what what brings you in Tommy Paul's camp, like the whole journey, like uh, as a as a good starting point. Okay, well, I mean, from my standpoint, I, I got into tennis a little bit late. Uh, I was a baseball player as a kid and um, and then kind of came to tennis at about uh, 14 years of age. I started taking some lessons and got involved in the game a little bit and just kind of fell in love with it. And uh, so I started playing tournaments at that point and ended up going to uh, junior college and played two years of junior college tennis and uh, was lucky enough at that time to have a phenomenal coach uh, at the junior college that I played at who had played on tour and at the time was was coaching both a, a male and a female player that were both on the top or in the top 100 at the time. And um, so he was he was a, a huge uh, mentor of, of the development of my game and also my um, my understanding really of of the game and of tennis. Um, and really kind of created and built for me, like almost the, the foundation of, of my coaching, uh, in a lot of ways, because he was such a technician and tactician. And, uh, I, I just learned so much. And, and, uh, one thing that he said that has always stuck with me, even to this day was that if you wanted to be a, a great player, or at least a good player in my case, um, that you needed to become a student of the game. And that's something that I always really took to heart was, was trying to be open-minded and, and uh, studious about the sport and the game. And, and, uh, and that's something that I, you know, I take some pride in to this day that I, I like to think that I have an open mind about continuing to learn about the game and, and finding new perspectives and new attitudes and new ideas about things that you can do to, to improve uh, for me as a coach and also for, uh, you know, players that you're working with. And then I went from there to, uh, I played two years of collegiate tennis at, uh, at Fresno state university. And, um, we had a pretty mediocre team really in a lot of ways, but absolutely loved the college experience. And, and, um, and then, when I finished at Fresno State, I became the assistant coach there uh, for for a few years. I was the assistant coach for about three years, 
And, and then at that same time, uh, I got involved with working with what was called back in those days, the Junior Davis Cup program, which was really our U.S. Junior National program. And the head coach at that time was a guy named Greg Patton. And Greg knew me as a player at Fresno State. We were in the same conference. And, and then I got to know him better as a, as a coach once I became the assistant coach. And so he asked me to apply for a position working with him as, as his assistant for Junior Davis Cup. And that really was uh, probably the, the most significant uh, thing that occurred in my young coaching career because – the teams that we had early on included Jim Courier, Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, Todd Martin, basically everybody from, from that time frame and that era, uh, except for Andre Agassi. He, he was never on the teams. He was actually already like turning pro. But it, but it gave me an opportunity to develop relationships with those players, and that's how I first came in contact with Jim. And um, – that same summer, the first summer that I worked with the Junior Davis Cup, I also ended up getting the head coaching position at Fresno State. The, my head coach decided to step away and, and retire, and um, he endorsed me, and I, and I ended up getting the job as the head coach at Fresno State. And, and uh, at the time, I was the youngest Division I head coach in the country. I was 26 years old. And um, I, I coached at Fresno State for five years. Uh, we had never, when I was playing there and prior to that, Fresno State had never finished higher than third in our conference. And, um, my third year there, we cracked the top 25 and my fifth year, which is my last year, we, uh, we got up to 16 in the country. So that was pretty good. And, and, uh, really enjoyed that experience being in college tennis and, and coaching at that level and coaching in the team environment was really, really an enjoyable experience for me. So, and then at the same time, my last year at Fresno state, I actually, I, I started coaching Jim on the tour full time. So my, my last semester at Fresno state, I was coaching Jim and coaching the, uh, the collegiate team, uh, working in conjunction with Jose Higueras, um, when I started coaching Jim. So yeah, that kind right. of like put me on the, tour and got me into that position no absolutely and uh i mean jim Curry is one player that i became a huge fan while i was still in india because uh i was a boris becker fan and most of my friends were rooting for andre agassi and pete sampras who were announced to the indian audiences because they had make made the breakthroughs earlier agassi made the french semis in 88 and pete won the u.s open jim comes on the horizon in 91 so i i picked up courier just you know just to be, you know, in the opposite camp. And then, of course, I fell in love with his forehand, his attitude. So I think that's a good segue right now. So uh, and when he took over Courier, I was looking at the rankings. He started the year in 2000 as 23 and ended the year as 23. But that doesn't really do justice, you know, what kind of work that goes on at a tour. So talk about that year. What kind of promise Jim Courier had? Because I was a tennis casual then, you know. We were not watching too many tennis matches. We were only getting slam in India and reading a lot about in newspapers and some magazines that had like New York Times articles shared with us. So everybody was talking about Andre, it seemed like, and Pete. 
So is it fair to say that Korea was a late bloomer? I mean, uh, that's how you would put it? Or since you knew him from juniors, you thought the contrary, he always had the same potential. What do you recall of the period? Well, I think that, I think that uh, like you said, Pete and Andre, you know, they kind of burst onto the scene at a very young age with their, with their success at the Grand Slam level. And Jim, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe him as being a late bloomer from the standpoint that, you know, he, he made top 10 when he was 20 years old. So he was still relatively young. He was just a little bit behind those guys. And those guys were, I mean, that class of players was uh, just so exceptional and, and, and accomplishing things at such an early age that, you know, it, it gives the impression a little bit that Jim was behind, but he wasn't really that far behind. You know, he was, he was already a top 30 player, uh, was having some success against the top players, but just hadn't quite made the major breakthrough yet that he, that he did later in 91. Uh, um, so it was, you know, when, when I started with him, he had made an adjustment, stopped working with a coach that he had been working with who was basically supplied to him through the Voluntary Academy. And um, he reached out to Tom Gullickson, who at the time was uh, was in charge of, of player development and um, told him that he wanted to try and be involved with and work with Jose Higueras. And Jose didn't really want to be a traveling coach, so Jim worked with Jose in Palm Springs and I was lucky enough to be on a short list of coaches that Jim was interested in traveling with. And I got a call from, from Tom Gullickson and uh, asked me if I was interested in that position. And, and I jumped at that opportunity. A, a big part of me jumping at that was because two years earlier, I had actually been approached about traveling and working with Pete Sampras. And being the genius that I am, I turned that job down because uh, at the time, Pete was just uh, Pete was just kind of like breaking into the tour. He had qualified maybe for one tour event and was still playing at the challenger level a little bit and getting some wild cards, you know. And here I was coaching at Fresno State, turned that opportunity down. And two years later, you know, Pete is, you know, already starting to dominate and looking like one of the best players in the world. and. I was uh, I was a little bit, you know, kicking myself for not having taken that opportunity. So when Jim reached out through Tom Gullickson, you know, I, I jumped at that opportunity. I had always wanted to uh, to have the opportunity to, to coach at the pro level. I always felt like if I was coaching, you know, basketball or football, that I would have wanted to coach at the NBA level or the NFL level to to kind of experience that and and you know, you felt that that was the pinnacle and the, the ultimate portion of being able to coach. So having an opportunity to coach at the tour level was something that I definitely wanted to do. No, that's an incredible detail, uh, declining Sampras. So again, and just to clarify my earlier take on the question, when I meant late bloomer, I only meant relatively because all these guys ended up having great careers and Andre and Pete made this strides at least at the global stage. Uh, at 18 and 19, and, and Jim wasn't too behind, and Michael also won the Roland Garros Championships in 89. So another uh, deep dive into Korea, because I have a huge bias, and you know I will totally let that get in the way. <laughs> so uh, 
we, we call him like a Lendl 2.0. We didn't ha- have terms like 2.0, but he was cut from the same cloth. It seemed like he was so much business. Of course, he has great personality. And now Lendl has personality too, but the media coverage was different. Uh, it seemed like the focus was more on the flamboyance of Agassi and Courier with his baseball hat and the and and, and the, that unique forehand was at least sold as business. So do you see any similarities when you were coaching him? Uh, like, was he more close to like, say, uh, Ivan Lendl kind of a guy who was just working on his craft and he was punishing the opposition? It seemed, uh, I don't know, it's hard to recall what I, I thought it 30 years ago, but the whatever memories come back, to me, he was an extension of Lendl. Is it a fair analogy? Uh, like how he dominated yeah, yeah. the sport I, I, with a one-two punch? I, I think that is a pretty fair analogy just from the standpoint that I think that um, that both Jim and Lendl prior to Jim were a little bit underappreciated. The, the, word, the word talent was often used in relationship to the other competitors in their eras, you know, whether that was McEnroe or uh, Connors or the other guys that were involved really more in Lendl's era or with the guys in Jim's era, you know, the Agassi, Sampras, Becker, Edberg, you know, the guys that had a little bit more flair and flash in their games. Um, that word talent was often thrown around and, and, and Jim had more of a, uh, and I think Lendl did as well, had more of a, a workman type approach. I think they were both obviously extremely talented tennis players, but they didn't have quite as much flair in their game and, and they didn't have quite as much personality maybe that, that came along with that. And um, they just kind of kept their head down and they, they came to the court and did their jobs. And so they, they were underappreciated, I think, by the media, and, and that translated sometimes to being a little bit underappreciated by the public. Um, I think that, you know, I don't know Yvonne incredibly well, but I know for Jim, and I think this probably is true for Yvonne a little bit also, that, you know, it created a bit of a chip on Jim's shoulder, uh, which gave him that much more motivation to want to be at the top, be at the pinnacle of the game. Um, And and so it it pushed him to want to show that, uh, you know, he did have talents. And and his talents might have been a little bit different than some of those other guys. But I remember in a a press conference somewhere, I don't remember exactly where it was, but him talking about that he felt that mental toughness, um, his commitment to fitness, that those were all talents and that those kind of talents were a little bit overlooked um, in comparison to the raw ball striking of a guy like Agassi or, or the flair of Pete's game. And, and um, so that did create a little bit of a chip on his shoulder and a little bit of motivation for him. No, it's, it's pretty, uh, I think it's well said because you had the best seat in the house. You knew the man. And I was, uh, you know, just like one of the fans who's reading stuff from the far and watching whatever we could uh, get uh, on television. But I think this is like a big divide, like on conversation, all sports. I follow cricket, I follow tennis, and I follow some NBA. There's always this divide, the incredibly gifted, talented ones, the McIndros of the world, and then the hardworking ones where Lendl is at the, you know, seen as the as a poster poster boy for that kind of an argument and you said Jim had his talents so what is talent to you like you've you've been around a lot of tennis players is Marcelo Rios taking the ball early and looking effortless is that also a definition of talent 
or what Ivan Lendl or Jim Curry or some of these guys are doing is also talent. I mean, how do you even distinguish talent when you are at the pro tour? Yeah, at the fan level and the and the wordsmith writer who could glorify McIndoe, the genius, all these words, that's that's all fitting. But what do actually people who work in tennis, you know, how, how do you see talent? How do you distinguish talent? Yeah, it's a it's a tough question, right? I mean, the for for me personally, especially with my background as a player, which is pretty limited, you know, a collegiate level player, uh, you know, I, I look at anybody that that makes uh, a career out of playing tennis and is successful at doing that, whether you're a top hundred player or top one fifty or top two fifty. If you're getting into the qualifying of the Grand Slams, you're obviously an extremely talented tennis player. Uh, you're in such a small, minute percentage of tennis players around the world that are all very good tennis players, and, and you've you've separated yourself from all of those. Then you take the guys that are top 100, the guys that are top 50, the guys that are top 10, uh, and then look at guys that are Grand Slam winners. And and the, the talent that it takes to be able to do that incorporates uh, an incredible physical toughness uh, mental strength, mental toughness, the discipline to play your game under extreme pressure conditions, um, but also obviously the technique, the mechanics, the ball striking ability, the timing that we know that tennis takes. Um, those are all the things. And I think one of the greatest examples, you know, we've had this amazing era of tennis right now with Federer and Nadal and, and Djokovic. And I think that, you know, you compare Federer and Nadal especially. And, you know, Federer always is described as making everything look so effortless. And he really does. Rafa, on the other hand, looks like he's, you know, such a workman at what he's doing, just working his, his tail off all the time on the court. And I think that often Roger is, is underappreciated for how hard he works and how tough he is on the court. And Rafa is underappreciated for how incredibly talented he is um, because we, we think of him as being an incredible competitor and such a workhorse that we sometimes overlook uh, how unbelievably talented he is. That, that's probably a silly statement to say that we overlook how talented Rafa Nadal is, but I think in comparison to Roger, sometimes that that does occur. And uh, I think in the end, you know, there are what you describe often as as talent based players and work based players. And the guys that achieve absolute greatness in the game combine being highly talent based players with incredible work based attitudes and efforts in what they do. And, and that's really what, what builds and what makes up a great player and separates those kind of players from guys that, that are also amazing tennis players, but maybe don't quite achieve that same level of success. Hmm. You gave me a lot to ponder on, and I probably will pick two questions out of your response. The first is, like you said, work-based, which you also attributed to Jim and some of what Lendl did. Everybody works hard. There's, there's no... Like there's no shortcut in tennis. You you don't get to like even number 250, like you said, if you aren't the best of your school, your neighborhood, your college, you know, your division, you, that's how you are like 250 in the world, the best 250 in the planet. So that's a given. 
but if we can compare eras, which we do in my, you know, I'm an armchair critic, you know, watch stuff on TV, never played at that level. So w- what was the hard work ethic of a Jim Courier? The, you know, the routine he was following when he was dominating tennis. Do you think that kind of hard work has been elevated, say, to what a Tommy Paul is doing today? Has the game become more physical? If we take the equipment off the side, what has changed in tennis in terms of training and weightlifting and what to eat, what not to eat, when to sleep, what Jim was doing compared to see what you what you're seeing with what Tommy Paul is doing? How has that aspect of the game evolved? Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting aspect, isn't it? I mean, you, you you alluded to it. You know, we anyone that's been around and paid attention to the game over you know the course of the last few decades is very aware of the changes in the equipment and the racket technology, the string technology has definitely allowed players to, to swing uh, at balls and hit balls with a, a greater degree of aggression and, and uh, force than, than what was previously seen. They're playing with primarily bigger racket heads, uh, you can spin the ball harder and more aggressive, aggressively. And all that leads to a faster overall pace within the game. You know, I look back and, and guys in this generation, Tommy, for example, or, or some of his compatriots like Taylor Fritz or those guys, you know, they, they scoff a little bit sometimes at, at seeing video of uh, Jim's era of play or especially Lendl or McEnroe. <laughs> and, um, but I think the fact is that Courier or Agassi or Sampras, you know, on, on any given ball could hit the ball just as big as any of the guys that are hitting today. It, the thing is, they probably weren't doing it quite as consistently as the guys today. So the, the, the pace of the game has definitely picked up. And that means that the movement that's involved in getting to the ball, putting yourself in the right position, to, to make the, the quality stroke mechanics that you need to, to execute at the highest level requires more speed and explosiveness. And, and uh, so I would say that, that based on all that, that, yeah, the game is a little bit more physical today than it was in those previous eras. And, uh, and the, the demands on that are a little bit different. The, the other aspect of your question, you know, from a fitness standpoint, you know, Jim was obviously, and you go back to your, to, you know, bringing up Lendl. I mean, those guys, Lendl was the first guy that really pushed fitness uh, to another level at the pro, at the pro tour level. And then Jim took that and he pushed that even further. And, and Jim was obviously widely regarded as the fittest guy on tour during his era and, and deservedly so. I mean, the, the, the effort and the, the, the training that Jit did off the court was, was crazy. Um, and it's interesting now to me, if you look at the guys at the top of the game, uh, Novak right now, Medvedev right now, Sasha Zverev right now, uh, a Yannick Sinner right now. These guys are all extremely thin and lean. And I think that's a bit of a difference that we see in comparison to the previous eras where you had. Uh, a Becker, a Jim Courier, even Pete, um, Andre Agassi, they were all a little bit more beefy in their, 
in their presentation on the court. And I think there was more emphasis back in that day on a little bit more of the, the strength. Whereas today, I think there's more focus on mobility, um, flexibility, and, and more quickness and movement. I, I, I think that it's interesting. I, I, I really like the terminology of being and needing nowadays um, explosive endurance. Tennis is really a lot about endurance, but you have to be explosive for the duration of all that endurance that you create over a three to four to five hour match. And, and I think that's what we're seeing now with these guys that they, they look almost more like um, endurance athletes than the guys from Courier's era that looked a little bit more like uh, defensive backs in American football. No, it's quite fascinating because, you know, the images of like Becker, Edberg, Courier, you know, uh, comes to mind. Of course, those shorts also help. Like they were shorter shorts, but you could see the <laughs> the big thigh muscles, right? Today, all these guys look like long distance runners or sprinters, you know, like Novak Djokovic is the, is the king of the hill and he's so prime. Like his, he, he weighs what, 172 or what, uh, something like that. So I think that's, there is not to say like a Becker or, you know, those guys had an ounce of fat either, but I think the bodies are, are managed very differently and explosive endurance, that's the word you're using. So elaborate that for a casual listener. What would that mean? Is just like a quick first step uh, and then to have that repeatability for five hours? What, what does that even mean? Yeah, I mean, you just said it exactly because in the end, tennis tennis is a rare sport in that uh, it really is primarily an anaerobic sport, meaning that most of it's about explosive movements. You know, the the majority of points don't last longer than around six seconds, seven seconds. You know, we, we hear these stats about tennis. The, the majority of points are four shots or less, especially on hard courts. <clears throat> four shots or less takes a very short period of time, but there's an explosive component to getting to those four balls that you're going to hit. Then at times we have longer points, but that's all the, the anaerobic capacity. But you take that and you stretch it over a, a two and a half, a three and a half, a four hour, a five hour match. And that incorporates a really big aerobic aspect of what you have to do within tennis. And that aerobic aspect is the endurance part. You know, you, so, so really what you need as a tennis player is the ability to be explosive, exploding to a service return, exploding up for your serve, exploding to a first ball. You know, the longest run that you do on a tennis court is probably no more than 20 or 25 meters. But those first two or three steps are the key to getting to so many balls on the court. So you need that explosiveness, but you need to be able to maintain that explosiveness over a long duration of playing long, tough matches, whether they're two out of three sets or whether they're three out of five sets. And that's where the concept of, of uh, explosive endurance comes into play, because those two things are a little bit opposed. But, but in tennis, that's exactly what you need. I hope listeners are taking note. That was some great stuff. So in a couple of questions ago, you used the word pressure, which often gets used in sport. So, and I promise last question on Jim, and then we'll segue into Tommy Paul, because I know Courier's uh, time so well. So I keep staying in that era. 
what does pressure mean to you? I mean, uh, there's there's an influx of st- statistics. You know, since Moneyball, every sport has like these stats and these brilliant ways of breaking down performance. And, and every sport has become more sophisticated. I'm sure when Dean Goldfine was here, he said UST also provides st- statistics and this is how you feed your player stats. But I'm going to stay clear of stats because enough has been talked about stats. I want to focus on pressure. So what does pressure mean at this level? Like when you're coaching Jim Courier, how much pressure are you going through at Wimbledon 92? And does the Andre Olhowski loss like kind of brings down a sense of relief? He was going f- for a grand slam. In my young tennis watching, no one had been in that position. I've been watching tennis at that point for six or five years. And the great Lendl's, the Beckers, nobody had won Australia and France. And he goes into Wimbledon and he's, you know, in that rare position. Of course, he loses to Olhowski. So what is pressure to you? I mean, using that example, are there big moments in sport? Yeah, of course. There, there are big moments in sport. There's, uh, I mean, there's the self-imposed pressure that players create, whether it's an individual sport or a team sport. Uh, you know, you, you brought up the, <laughs> the match in, in Wimbledon, Jim going into Wimbledon, having won the first two legs of the Grand Slam. Um, I mean, there's, there's an enormous amount of pressure. There's, there's the understanding of what's on the line and in that situation. Um, I think there's the the pressure that builds, uh, Jim experienced this without a doubt, you know, it would be, it would be great for Tommy Paul to be able to start experiencing this more and more, but there, there's the pressure of winning when, when you become, when you become one of the top players and you're recognized as one of the best players and, and winning becomes an expectation from both outside and inside. Winning sometimes becomes a burden, and and that creates pressure uh, for for the matches that you go into. And then you get into the individual matches and the pressure of individual points based on the score and the matches. So there's so much pressure in so many different ways. So not all and, the points are same able to, because to deal with that pressure. <clears throat> yeah, I, I hate that saying, you know, you hear coaches, especially at the junior level, and they talk to their players all the time and are telling them, you know, you, you play every point the same, every point's the same. And that, that's just not true. The, the, there's a difference between love 15 or 15 love, enormous difference than playing at, at break point up or break point down at four all in the final set of a match. And, and you feel that pressure and you feel that tension and it, and it, uh, it manifests itself in many different ways, depending on the players, you know, players deal with those pressures in, in different ways. And um, obviously the best players find a way to execute their game. And, and I don't think it's that they don't feel the pressure. We, we sometimes from the outside spectators, you, you feel that, you know, they're, they have ice in their veins and they're not feeling the pressure. I, I think that that's the, an unrealistic view. I think that even the best players are always feeling pressure in those moments. They're finding a way to manage that pressure and allow themselves and their bodies to function and do the things that they're capable of doing. It's what sets them apart from other players that are that are a little bit more mediocre uh, under those circumstances and and fail under those circumstances more often 
than the best players who find a way to execute under those pressures more often. Okay. So let's take a deeper dive into internal pressure. Like you said, sometimes players have the pressure. Um, so again, geez, we can't get enough of Courier. So Courier was doing tennis channel commentary last year on a match between Zverev and Rude. And I remember Courier saying something because Zverev's double faulting and ball toss has been the talk of the town for like last few years. Whenever he plays, his double faults is, you know, and second serves under the scanner. And then Courier said on, on air that he talked to Sergey Bruguera. He said, what are you doing to fix his second serve? And Bruguera told Courier he doesn't miss the second serve in practice. So it can it happen a world-class player? is His form is not breaking down in practice, but in a match situation, the serve uh, and the serve toss goes away. Is that a normal thing, or do you think that's technical? Well, I, I don't know that I would say that it's a normal thing, but I would say it's a common thing. And there's, there's absolutely – it's a very common thing. Uh, you know, obviously there's no pressure in practice. You don't feel that sense of pressure in practice. And there's, there's really, as a tennis player, there's no way to completely recreate the pressure that arises and occurs, uh, under match situations. And, and so it's, it's not surprising that you see players performing uh well in practice <clears throat> executing their game just like you know you're you're selecting that as an example you know Sasha's serve which we know he's he's basically uh you know had the yips at certain times on his serve you know and it's not surprising to hear that in practice and practicing it without any pressure that he's able to execute it on a consistent basis <clears throat> it's under that pressure that he, he struggles to find the freedom to allow his body to work the way that it's capable of working. And, and that starts, the body doesn't work because the mind starts closing down and, and starts feeling that pressure. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so let's bring in Tommy Paul. We've spent the first half of the conversation about Jim Courier and your past. So now let's bring your current child, Tommy Paul, and still stick on pressure. So Tommy played his big match against Novak Djokovic in Melbourne a few months ago. Different match because you're going against an absolute legend, a man who owns the tournament. And, you know, the resume is of Djokovic. You know, we can go on and on what he is to tennis. So there's definitely no pressure from, for at least for what I think, you know, not to like downplay Tommy Paul's chances. But when you go against that kind of an opponent, you, you're kind of playing with house money. But then... Tommy Paul also has his own rise now. He's moving up the rankings. So if he plays someone like, say, of Sasha Zverev or Felix Ogier-Lissim, in those matches, he has to like his chances, like what happened last night. So what what's the pressure equation in both those matches? And and what kind of talk you have, uh, you know, to to prepare your guy? Like, okay, if those moments come, just uh, there's a belief you talk about or stick to the guns. I mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth but uh, you, you know where, where I'm coming from there's one situation where there is a lot less pressure or maybe no pressure and then there's a situation on a winnable match yeah I mean I would I would actually disagree with the argument that there's no pressure we hear that we hear that from you know again from media or commentators all the time saying like you know well you're you're much lower ranked or you get to a situation where you're playing a player and you're the you're the underdog, you know, as the underdog in that match. 
you know, you've got nothing to lose. The old, that, that, those exact words, you've got nothing to lose. Hey, Tommy's playing the semifinals of a grand slam. He obviously has a lot to lose. You know, he's, he's playing with the opportunity to get to the finals of a grand slam. He's playing with the opportunity to beat uh, one of the greatest players of all time. And, and, and those things alone create an enormous amount of pressure within what you want to do and walking out to play that match. Then you add on top of that, that you're playing uh, again, one of the, uh, one of the, the goats of the game in an environment that he's been absolutely incredibly successful at. Uh, you're playing in front of a packed house, live house, much less an enormous international uh, audience on television. Uh, you don't want to embarrass yourself. You want to play your best tennis. All of those things, all of those things create pressure. And, and so finding a way to go out in your first semifinal of a Grand Slam ever and play the best tennis that you can or the best tennis that you're capable of under those circumstances, I think is extremely difficult. Um, is it a different type of pressure than playing someone where you're the favorite in the match or where it's more of an even matchup going in on paper? Of course it is. Those are different types of pressure, but the suggestion that, Oh, he has no pressure. It's it's just go out there and play with freedom and let yourself go and and just go for it because you're not expected to win this match. I think is a really unrealistic way to look at those matches, and it's certainly not the way that, as a coach or as a player, that you're approaching that match. Um, you know, you I, I think that's just an unrealistic view and and. Even if he's able, as players often are in those circumstances, to play with a with a a greater sense of freedom at some points in the match, if you're able to stay close in the match, at some point pressure is going to build, and you're going to have pressure based on all those same factors: semifinals of a Grand Slam, playing one of the greatest players of all time. So. Sooner or later, whether it's in the moment walking out, which I guarantee you it is, any player that's walking out in a Grand Slam semifinal for the first time in his life is going to be feeling an enormous amount of pressure just walking onto the court, much less walking onto the court with Novak Djokovic. So I think that there's, there's an enormous amount of pressure there for Tommy under that circumstance. Uh, it's a different type of pressure, just like you said, than walking on the court last night, round of 16 at Indian Wells, where his expectation is that I can absolutely win this match. I think he's walking on the court with Novak, you know, hoping that he puts himself in a position to maybe have a chance to win the match. So, so that's a little bit different, but there's... No, th thanks for clarifying that, and that's a I think great explanation for anyone who uh, who likes to talk about pressure and uh, wanted to hear a professional viewpoint. Uh, th then the extension of this question is: No matter how great you are, Tommy Paul is a great player, and you've worked you know so hard to get to these opportunities. So it's fair to say, for a minute or two, you do play the man, 
you don't play the ball all the time, right? It, it matters who you're playing against. And I'm sure most professionals say, no, it's the same thing. But what's your take on that? Do you, does the, does the moment change when it's Federer across the net or Djokovic compared to say, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I, I, I think you'd have a hard time. I, again, I would disagree. I think you'd have a hard time finding a pro that says, oh, it doesn't matter who's on the other side of the court. It, it absolutely matters. You walk on the court with one of the all-time greats uh, on a court where he's, <clears throat> he's won the title nine times already. I don't, know how many, I don't know how many matches he had gone without a loss in Australia, but it's, it's, uh, it's a ridiculous number. You know, I mean, it's, he owns that place. So, and, and whether it's him or whether it's Rafa or whether it's Roger, um, there, there's a different sense of walking on the court. You know, if you're a Tommy Paul and you're ranked 34 in the world, uh, anyone that's in that range and has gotten to that point in a tournament, you know, unique situation for him, first time experience, there's, there's going to be a definite, definite sense of, <coughs> um, trying to control yourself in that moment, getting out there, trying to get comfortable, finding a way to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Cause I guarantee you, you're uncomfortable in that situation and trying to find a way to become comfortable with being uncomfortable that allows you to find your best tennis is not an easy thing to do in any way, shape or form. Okay. Makes, makes sense. All right, so another comparison now with Jim, right? Uh, these guys are slightly older uh, right now in their in their evolution. Uh, TFO, Fritz, and Paul, same generation, but a little older than suppose when you started coaching uh, Jim Courier back in ninety. Uh, they were a little younger. Do you think the same cards have been dealt again? Uh, uh, the talk has been more on the evolution or rise of TFO and Fritz in the last year or so, and Tommy just snuck in there. You think Tommy has the same chip on the shoulder, even though it's a friendly rivalry between the three? And of course, the Cordas and the Sheltons are knocking the door. American men's scene looks real promising. You think there's, a, you know, is he going about his business or there's also this healthy competition, but also a certain chip, you know, I'm here too. Is that is that what you sense? Is that a fair question? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's a fair question. I, I, I actually don't think that Tommy has as much of a chip on his shoulder under those circumstances or in that situation, I think that um, one of the things that I think has pushed Tommy and gotten Tommy to, to be enjoying the degree of success that he has been now over the last uh, year and a half or two years or so is that Tommy has developed a, a greater sense of, of uh, finding that, work-based mentality. I think that coming into the tour that uh, the guys that you mentioned, Tommy's generation, the, the, those, you, you mentioned four guys, really the, you mentioned three, you, you left out Riley Apelka, who's obviously been out for a while right now, but I think Fritz, Fritz, uh, Tiafo, Apelka and Paul all come from a little bit more of the degree of talent-based mentality and that it's taken them a little bit of time, each of them within their own uh, ascension towards the top of the game to find that balance with their work-based mentality. Um, and I, I know that that's something that Tommy and I have certainly spoken about. 
is is developing more of a work-based mentality to go with the talent that he does possess as a player, but getting away a little bit more from a talent-based playing mentality where that, the suggestion of that is that as a more talent-based player that you're relying more on your ball striking ability and feeling the ball and shot making that you are on the competitive skills of fighting through the adversity that arises in matches and, and toughing out um, difficult situations and, and pressure situations in the matches. Sure. And, and how much is your role like with on, on Tommy's uh, coaching team? Is it more technical? Is it also more mental to prepare him for, these tough moments or clutch moments, if we call them, uh, what, what is the, what is the coaching relationship in this kind of a situation when there's so much upside and how do you approach this? Well, the, any coach on the tour has a, uh, has a hat rack of probably six or eight hats that he wears at any given time that, that, you know, cover the gambit of being anything from a, from a travel agent to a uh, sports psychologist, obviously a, uh, a, ta- a tactician, a, uh, a, a technical coach. Some coaches are better. Some coaches are not as strong necessarily, maybe at the tactical as or the technical aspects of, of ball striking. Um, but you, you're talking about all those different variables that, that, a player needs to try and maintain their optimal playing state, not just in a given match, but in a given tournament, in a given portion of the season, whether it's hard court season, clay court season, grass court season, indoors, you know, that you, you go through in the course of a, of a year, a season that you're playing on tour, you know, there's, there's obviously going to be some ups and downs. For most players, unless you're uh, unless you are one of the goats and you're only losing three to ten matches a year, which doesn't happen for more than one or two guys on tour. Um, so so there's obviously there's highs and lows that you have to navigate. And all of those things are are part of the responsibility of the coach to, to help the player navigate those to keep their their stroke mechanics um intact and and in the right direction potentially to be working on aspects of their game and developing new aspects adding things to their game um the mental aspects of dealing with both winning and losing because there's there's aspects to both of those things that can actually lead to to bad things down the road there's there's aspects to those that can lead to good things down the road and trying to make sure that that it works out so that they're more positive, obviously, is is extremely important. So, we as coaches, um, we're 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 constantly changing hats in any given moment. You know, I think that there's um, what you would call teaching moments that occur in the most you know obscure places sometimes. Hmm. That, but you have to be prepared, I think, to like find those moments and be able to to use them to help your player, you know, in the direction that you want them to be going. No, fair enough. And everyone responds differently to a tougher situation. And I've asked this question to almost 
every coach who's been on this podcast from Boynton to Cahill and Goldfine, I'm going to ask you this. So after a match like last night, and it's different for each person, when do you and Tommy talk about this? Do you just, what's your approach? It's a, it's a painful loss. It's part of his evolution. I'm sure he's had this kind of a loss in juniors. This is normal. But on this kind of a stage, again, a, a quality player like Felix. So it's a missed opportunity. So when do you guys, if you have already not talked about this, when do you bring this up? Yeah, you know, with, with obviously it's different, like just like you said. And sometimes, I mean, one of the best things I ever heard was, again, from my good friend Tom Gullickson um, said to me a long, long time ago, uh, when I, when I was a much younger coach, he said that he had had a coach that told him that, um, every player needs a half hour of insanity after a loss. And, and the suggestion being basically, you know, you, you're, you give them a little bit of space during that, during that 30 minutes to kind of like, uh, process things and, and hopefully be in a better mindset to be able to absorb whatever it is that you want to talk about. Um, I'll tell you very specifically that last night after Tommy's loss, I came and found him in the locker room. It was very late. It was the latest match that was there at the facility. Everybody else was basically gone. The locker room was empty. Um, Felix had not come back to the locker room yet. So it was literally me and Tommy in the locker room by ourselves. Uh, I walked in, Tommy was already sitting on the bench facing the lockers. So his back to me and, uh, I walked in and literally just put my arm around him and, uh, told him I was really proud of him. And, and, um, he said, thanks. And, that was about it in that moment, really, you know, and, and then we started talking a little bit about logistics of what we were going to do for next week and travel plans. And he was unloading his locker and, and uh, there wasn't really much said about any of the specifics of the match, any, any points or any tactics or anything like that. And I'll let that ride now, probably until I see Tommy again on the practice court. And then I'll start bringing up, you know, a few specifics, this point here, that point there, um, you know, the tactics, different things that work, different things that didn't. And we'll start talking about those. And at that point, he'll be in a much, much, much more receptive mode to listening to that and, and you know, hopefully growing from that and applying those things to, to the matches that, that will come up you know, in Miami and, and beyond that. No, absolutely. And th- thanks for sharing that because I kind of, you know, when you were saying these words that the locker room was empty, it was, yeah, I kind of imagined what it must have felt like. I've never seen inside of a locker room, but yeah, uh, that's kind of, uh, it, it's a very lonely sport, right? Uh, tennis. It's not like a team sport. So yeah, again, uh, that, that's kind of valuable what you, what you told us right now. Uh, so in comparing to other people you have coached, like Jim, Taylor Dent, Sebastian Grosjean, Marty Fish briefly, uh, how, is, how, how much have you learned about yourself? I know it's a cliched question, but I'm sure no job is the same and you're dealing with people. It's not like my desk job that, you know, I'm working on an application, I'm working on a website. It's different. You're dealing with these people who are highly trained individuals, you know, playing tennis for money, competitive juices are flowing. Uh, how has Brad Stein evolved over these years from the man who started coaching Courier and took him to world number one and now someone who's trying to help 
take Tommy, Tommy Paul to newer heights. What have you learned about yourself during this process? You know, it's a, it's a great question, actually. I mean, I'm being a little bit cheeky when I say this, but not really. I'm actually being a little bit serious as well that, you know, I, I would say that I'm a, a softer, gentler uh, Brad Stein as a coach now than I was when I first started coaching Jim. You know, I was about uh, 31 when I first started coaching Jim. And um, I was fresh out of coaching collegiate tennis. And um, I was a pretty feisty guy back in those days. I, I, I can still be pretty feisty nowadays, but I think I pick my battles a little bit more uh, carefully nowadays than I used to. Uh, I, probably, I probably raise my voice less nowadays than I used to. So I, I would say those things are, I, I, I learned, I learned actually a very valuable lesson back coaching collegiate tennis that I could get my message across to my players um, without having to scream and yell and create a bunch of histrionics um, that you can be stern and, and have a, a strong presentation without having to lose your control emotionally because there was a there was an incident that occurred with me in collegiate tennis as a very young coach where I did literally lose it emotionally and uh, I kind of snapped and and just went nuts on a couple of guys and, and it was uh, uh, it was a turning point in my coaching career it was a bit of an epiphany um, and I was embarrassed by it later in the day and that night and I came back the next day and, and uh, apologized to everyone. And, and, um, and it actually changed, changed me in, in how I approach things. And um, that's not to say that I still wasn't pretty feisty. There was a kind of a well-known incident early on when I was coaching Courier where I, I actually, uh, I grabbed him by his shirt like you would uh, around the neck almost and, and was holding him by the shirt and kind of about a half an inch from his nose, nose to nose, and getting in his face over some things that had occurred. And um, hmm. uh, those things occur with me. Those things occur with me only in relationship to, to two things. I, I generally early on with players that I work with tell them that there's only two things that I ever really get angry or, or upset about, and, and those both have to do with attitude and effort. If your attitude is good and your effort is good uh, and you lose, then we'll deal with that in a mature uh, way that, that hopefully is going to help us get better. But if your attitude is, is bad, which often leads to bad effort, then that's going to be a much more confrontational type of conversation. Hmm, interesting. All right. So let's take a digression here. You, you, you caused this. It's on you because you're giving me so many good details. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going off tangent here. So you, you came back to Coach Courier, right? Of course, there's without saying you guys must have a bond. Then you stayed again, you know, after a couple of his hiatus, you come back and he's not the same player. Uh, now we see Magnus Norman back in Stan Wawrinka's corner. Lendl's come back to Murray for the third time. Uh, 
again, d- different. You, you know, you don't get to coach a career or Murray again and again. I get it. Or a Wawrinka. All these guys are wonderful champions. Uh, as a coach, are you giving up an opportunity when, say, you come back to coach career? You could have worked maybe at that point with some other young young player. I mean, so is it more like you're rewarding loyalty at that point because you, as a professional, again, I'm not putting words in your mouth. That's what I'm seeing from far. Courier was a spent force. Spent as in like his world-class status. He was still good, but it looked like his best years were behind him. So it's still like the same challenge that you want to bring him to the promised land. And you, you of course, you must have had a belief in that. But at the same time, there's also like camaraderie. There's like trust that you want to go to the sunset with him and then resume your next coaching gig after he's gone. So at that level, w- w- again, so it's, it's a weird question. Sorry, I'm throwing a lot at you. But uh, w- what is your toolkit? I mean, uh, you so, go back no, to no, the same I, guy. I, I think it's actually, you know, in, in my experience with with my, you know, I can only speak to to my own personal experiences, but I think it's actually a great question. You know, you, you, you've opened a question that, you, you know, you don't know the, the background to, um, but I'll give you the, I'll give you the story, you know, that when, when I stopped with Jim, because I stopped with Jim. So Jim and I started towards the end of 1990 and I had the, the pleasure of working with Jim through the, the best part of his career when he, he won his four Grand Slams. He made seven Grand Slam finals altogether, got to number one, won the Davis Cup. I mean, you know, a pretty, a pretty amazing period of time there between 91 and 93. And then, you know, after he lost in the finals of Wimbledon in 93 to Sampras, um, Jim was extremely frustrated with that loss. And he felt that there were some things that he was missing in his game because he wasn't able to win that match. I think it was a little bit of a unrealistic view on his part, but it started a little bit of a downhill uh, spiral for him. You know, I mean, I say a spiral, he was still in the top 10. Uh, He was still extremely dangerous, but you know, after 93, he never made another grand slam final. So that was a tough period. And during that time, I was approached by Andre Medvedev. And at the time, Andre Medvedev was uh, 19 years old and was number four in the world. And he approached me about coaching him. And I made the decision to, to stop with Jim, to stop working with Jim. And part of that decision was based on the fact that you know, he still had Jose Higueras. Jose was still working with Jim. And I wanted to be in a position to take more responsibility for the, the success and the failures of the player that I was working with on my own. And uh, so I stepped away from working with Jim. And I spoke to Jim about that and told him that I had this, this opportunity and this situation. And at the time, Jim said, you know, it sounds like a phenomenal opportunity for you. I totally understand. And was, you know, gave me the impression that he was kind of giving me an endorsement to to step away from working with him. So I started with Andre and and um, during a two year period uh, after I left Jim, Jim basically never said hello to me. I saw him on a daily basis around the tournaments and in, in you know, at the events and I would always acknowledge him and say hello to him. And 
he uh, he basically never said hello to me during that two year period. And what happened wow. was that through a, through a mutual friend, Jonathan Stark, who was playing on the tour, we were both at Jonathan's wedding. We had a few drinks. Jim was struggling a bit at that time. And his agent approached me and told me that they had had a conversation on the way out to the wedding and that he had suggested to Jim <laughs> that he maybe approached me again about, about doing some work with him. And it's so at one point at the reception of the wedding, we were kind of milling around and I just turned around, Jim turned around and we happened to be face to face. And we both had a few drinks and we, we struck up a conversation. First time we'd had a conversation in two years. And then later that summer, Jim lost first round at the U.S. Open and, um, and he reached out to me about coming back and working with him again. And I was working with Jonathan Stark at the time. So I approached, I approached Starkey and asked him if he was okay and comfortable with that. And he said he was. And, uh, and so I went out to Florida and I started working with Jim. And we, um, you know, to answer your question more specifically, one of the reasons that I went back was because I was aware of some things that were going on in Jim's game that I felt like hadn't been addressed. And um, Jim hadn't won a title at that point in, I think, about 18 months or so. And we spent about three weeks in Florida working together on some things, changed his footwork, moving out to his right, to his wide forehand. And then the first event that we went to was in Shanghai. Uh, yeah, it was in Shanghai in China. And Jim won the tournament. He beat uh, he beat a top 10 player in the finals. And I felt like, okay, this is in the direction of going back to him, potentially making the top 10. And I really thought that he could get back into the top 10 and that he had the potential still to make a deep run at a slam or a couple of slams. And so all of those factors were the motivating factors for me going back to help Jim. And, and I felt that we were really, really on a good track uh, once he won that event in Shanghai. Unfortunately, he won both singles and doubles that week and played a lot of tennis. And he had a little bit of a, an injury in his quad that was just bothering him a little bit by the end of the week. And the next week was in Singapore, basically pretty close to the same draw from the week before. And he was into the quarterfinals and, and uh, he was playing Thomas Johansson in the quarterfinals. And basically this little irritation in his quad turned into a tear. And, and he ended up losing that match. He didn't retire, but he stayed on the court and lost six love in the third. And then we had to take a break. And, and uh, we took a, a break for a number of weeks. He went to Paris, Paris indoors, last event of the year. Thought the leg was in good shape and went out to play his first round match and hurt the leg again. And, and that was extremely frustrating. And then got the leg 
back to where it should be. And we started working in the off season and he started having a problem with his arm. And, and that led into some missed events leading up to the Australian open. And I look back on that period and I, and I, I'm always, I've always been frustrated because I felt like the things that we did within Jim, Jim's game and the adjustments that we made and the fact that he went and won Shanghai. And I, I had the feeling that he, he would have potentially won Singapore and, you know, won events back to back would have put him back inside the top 20 and really on track to climb back towards the top 10. Um, and it just didn't work out because of the injuries. And, and um, so for me, you know, I really felt that there was potential there for Jim to get back to the top levels of the game. You know, I never had any expectation whatsoever that he would, get back to number one or anything like that. But, but we talked about it, you know, and we felt like he could get back to the top 10. We felt like he had the potential to go deep into some slams again and, and maybe win a slam again. And so those were all the motivating factors for going back and, and putting that time in with Jim and working with him during that time. No, it's kind of ironic too, right? You, injuries get in the way for the fittest of them, like Lendl and Courier both, I think, kind of their careers were shortened or ended because of, you know, chronic injuries or one after the other. That's how, uh, and if someone had told you, like the two fittest guys of all time, at least for their own generation, injuries did get the better of them towards the end. It's it's a cruel sport. <laughs> uh, were you coaching Medvedev in 94 when he lost to Boris Becker at Wimbledon when Becker raised his hand a couple of times as a bit of gamesmanship in the fifth set? Were you in his coaching box then? Um... I'm going to say yes. Okay, that's another uh, special memory for me because uh, I was a huge Becker fan and uh, Becker got booed, you know, <laughs> because what he did during those two matches at Wimbledon. But anyway, that's a, that's a, that's not a question. That was more like a detail. So uh, sticking back to, you know, your your coaching uh, style, do, do you, I'm sure it's an open relationship with all your players, you guys set targets, but what is your target, individual target, when you're working with Tommy Paul besides the ranking? Are there targets that you want to achieve? You want to see him play a certain way? Uh, do you set that, set that out in the beginning of the season or do you revisit these conversations maybe towards the, uh, towards maybe after every major, towards like some building, uh, some, some major milestones? How does that conversation uh, play out for you? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that, um, again, going back to the, uh, the talent-based mentality versus the work-based mentality, uh, I really sat down with Tommy over a year and a half ago and, and I told him that my number one goal for him was that he came to practice every day and showed up for matches every day intent upon putting in the best quality effort that he could on that day. And that, that I wanted to approach things on a day to day basis and so I haven't really sat down with Tommy and set any kind of outcome oriented goals, like, like ranking goals or, um, you know, we want to win X number of titles this year or anything like that. It, it's all been much more process oriented. Uh, you mentioned that you're, you're right on target when you say that, you know, it's, we, we've, we've had a consistent evolution of Tommy's identity as a player from when we first started. 
And so the goals have been for him to be a more attacking player. The goals have been for him to, to play different, more aggressive patterns on the court. And, you know, we have some specific patterns that we look for him to try and play into. And so if I see him accomplishing those goals on a day-to-day basis, then from my standpoint as his coach, I'm very happy with the progress that we're making. And Tom, it was funny for a, for a period of time, Tommy being kind of the, the cheeky guy that he is, you know, every day when we would go to practice, whether it was in, in Florida on training weeks or at the tournaments, you know, we grab the balls and start heading towards the practice courts. And Tommy would say in a little bit of a sarcastic way, jokingly, but obviously very serious as well. He would say, okay, let's go get better today. And that was kind of a function of, you know, me saying our goals and my goals for him are on a day-to-day basis, not so much a long-term outcome-oriented basis. Hmm, Interesting. And again, I had Jose Aguirre on the podcast a few years ago, and we talked about, this is the question of the clay season coming up. And, uh, And, you know, the importance of clay. And Tim Mayotte is a big advocate of that. That all these guys, uh, Tommy, Taylor, Francis, Corda, all these guys will go deep at a major or do well when they start going deep at Roland Garros. He thinks there's a connection in the movement and how, you know, especially Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, all these guys grew up on clay. They they all play all surfaces, but clay education is very important. Jose Higueras emphasized that when he was part of the USTA. Tim Mayotte has been on my podcast a few times. He says the same things. So with using that question as a backdrop, how ready do you think is Tommy Paul like and what to make a deep run at the French Open or a clay masters? You think his game is suited? You think there's a preference for hard courts? I remember play, him playing a match with Dominic team where for first three sets they were like absolute equals when team went on to reach the final that year. But then team won the fourth set, I think slightly the easiest score line. So larger question for you. Where does Clay fit into your metric of making Tommy the best version of himself and how ready is he to make a deep run at a Monte Carlo or a Madrid? Yeah, I think, I think that players, I say this all the time. I, I think that players and, and as a coach that you learn something, you learn things about yourself and about your game and about where you want your game to go from playing on all the surfaces Every surface teaches you something about how you can be a better player. And Clay is probably the best professor of all the surfaces because obviously you have to play uh, in a manner that, that is a little bit more oriented towards, towards point development and building a point from start to finish. Um, and, and so you, you learn how to construct points. You learn the mental toughness that it takes uh, to play more extended points throughout the the entirety of a match on clay than you do on the faster surfaces. Um, So I I think that clay is probably one of the, if not the best educators that you get within tennis of how to become a more well-rounded, complete tennis player. Um, So for me, it's extremely important. 
I'm a big believer in, in, uh, in experiencing all the surfaces, finding ways to be as successful as you can possibly be all on all the surfaces. I, I think that I, I look back and I always remember Todd Martin uh, one year. I don't know if it was leading into the clay court season, if it was during the clay court season, but he was, he was asked somewhere about, you know, his chances on the clay or how he felt about playing on the clay. And he said, he said something along the lines of the fact that, you know, clay was the most um, challenging surface for him to try and play his best tennis on, but that he really enjoyed embracing that challenge uh, and, uh, and trying to figure out how he could play his best tennis on that surface. I think that's something that, you know, the Americans of the previous generation have, uh, have to have done and that these guys that are playing right now need to do. It's, it's not necessarily where they all produce their best tennis, but that doesn't mean that they can't do well on the surface. Um, if you look at Tommy individually, Tommy has the skill set to be a very good clay court player. And he, he's shown that. I mean, he won the French juniors. It's junior tennis, but he won the French juniors. The match that you're alluding to at the French Open, you know, is, is four years ago. And um, he pushed Dominique Tim to an extreme level and showed what he's capable of doing on, on a clay court. Tommy moves extremely well on clay. Um, he, he understands, and that's, that's such a massive part of playing well on the clay, is the movement aspect. Um, Tommy knows how to move on a clay court. He can be a very efficient, very effective player on clay. And this season especially, Tommy didn't have a particularly good season on clay last year. And uh, we talked about, I think, part of the responsibility for that was mine because we were really pushing Tommy leading up to the clay last year and throughout the hardcore season um, to be a more aggressive attacking style tennis player. And I think when he got to the clay last year that um, he was a little bit confused about how to, how to apply his game based on that attacking style uh, to the clay and, and probably didn't produce the kind of tennis that he's capable of. Maybe I didn't do as good a job um, explaining to him that he, that he wasn't going to be able to play that exact same style that we had been talking about on hard courts or on faster courts. So I, I, he has some real ground that he can make up this year in the, in the clay court season. And uh, I'm certainly hopeful that we can do a better job this year. I think we're going to get a little bit more of a, of a clay court training block to prepare and lead into the, to the clay court season. So we'll see how that goes, but I'm, I'm certainly hopeful that he can do some damage on the clay. Yeah, sorry, I was in mute. I'm saying we'll be looking forward to how he and you, the team fares in clay. So a couple more questions. I'll promise I'll let you go. This has been a fun conversation. So now on court coaching, there's been a big, you know, big topic in tennis. How has that helped or in, in your viewpoint or has it helped at all? Are you talking about, you mean specifically with Tommy or in general? Yeah, you can give your example. I mean, I think that that's what I'm looking for. But yeah, even in general, if you want to speak on a broader terms. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I just did an interview with a, a writer on this topic. And, and um, I mean, I, 
I think that it's been it's been an interesting situation. I think there's been less coaching overall than what people expected. I think people expected that there was going to be, you know, a constant like communication from coaches to players. And there really hasn't been. Um, <laughs> I've, I've talked to a couple different people about the fact that specifically with Tommy, when we, when we first started the, the trial and coaching was allowed, it took a few matches for Tommy to, to get comfortable. He early on, he was, because the, the freedom was there to be able to communicate with the box more, he was using that as a way to kind of vent his frustration a little bit more on the court. And it created a little bit more of a negative atmosphere for him than what he was actually doing prior to that. And so that was something that we sat down and discussed that, you know, the box wasn't there for him to vent frustration. The box was there for me to be able to, try and help him to play better tennis and also that if he was going to communicate with us in the box that his tone and the things that he was saying needed to be constructive in order to to try and help himself produce his best tennis and that took us probably two tournaments really where it got to the point where he was he was more comfortable in and was actually staying more focused in the way that we wanted or to him to be on the court. So part of that was that he doesn't necessarily need to make eye contact or look at us in order to hear or say what he wants to get from me or for him to express what he wants to express. That it's important for him to keep his, his focus narrow with his eyes most of the time and maintain that on the court, which is what I think historically – players at the tour level have done and, and normally do is to keep that focus relatively narrow with their eyes. And, um, and so we, we talked about that and keeping that in that kind of a, a narrow focus area while still being open to hearing what's coming from the box. Mm, do, do you think it makes the sport better? Do you think we had to do this? I, I'm old school. I thought, it would have been better the way it was. But do you think it really makes it for a better watching experience, strictly from a fan's point of view? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting. This is a question that I got also. I mean, I, from my standpoint, it shouldn't have been done in a way that's oriented around making it more interesting to see the interaction between the coach and player. It should have been done and it should be done from the spectator standpoint of presenting a better product on the court. If the coach can help the player produce better tennis, which makes the tennis more interesting to watch, then I think that's a good thing. I think one of the things we have to be cautious about is that I feel like already there's too much interaction between commentators and the spectators being able to hear what's going on between the coach and the player. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't think that that actually should be available on a regular basis. We have microphones right there, right in front of us, in front of the box. Uh, the TV is picking up what we're saying to the players. And, and I actually don't think that's a good thing. Th those conversations I think should be more, internal between the coach and the player 
you know, you obviously within other sports don't get access to what coaches are saying to players um, within their within their competitive atmosphere. And, and I, I think that that's something that oversteps the bounds of the coach-player relationship with the spectators a little bit. Kind of bothers me, to be honest with you. And also, there's a concern that, um, you know, the other, the other team could potentially be having access to what you're saying to your player. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And, and, yeah. I, and I don't. And I, and I don't like that. I don't like the fact that, you know, one of their, they could have a friend or, a, a, you know, another person that's watching the match, hearing what's being said from one, from a coach to a player, commentators commentating on that. And then they could be text messaging the other coach and telling them that, you know, the coach is telling their player to uh, play more balls to the backhand corner or to serve more balls to the forehand. True. No, I, I, that's why I, I feel they should have left it alone. But uh, there's this continuous drive to improve the sport and using other sports as benchmark, which, again, like I'm going to use the word again, I'm old school. I didn't think it was needed, but I and I still don't watch tennis uh, to see what the coaches are saying. I'd rather get a podcast to pick someone's brain and still enjoy the match. To me, that's uh, that's that's not a feature I'm inclined towards. Anyway, so Daniel Medvedev quickly talking about the court surface in Indian Wells. He's been open that how slow this court is. And then there's also talk about different balls uh, being used at different tournaments and sometimes it's causing an injury. Uh, this has been, I think, explored at length. So as as a coach on the tour, one, what's your take on the surface in Indian Wells? Do you think we need to speed in these courts because it's kind of ridiculously slow when big guys are like hitting like five, six shots before they even can get someone to, you know, move the wrong way to hit a winner. And then uh, what's your take on the balls? Uh, should this be a consistent brand of balls or a consistent? I don't know what you, because you, you don't want to rule other companies out. What's your take on the balls issue and the court speed here? Yeah, the, I, I mean, I, I think that whether it's a specific event like Indian Wells or throughout the year, I, I think there's a benefit to having different court surface speeds, you know, even if you're playing on hard courts, I think that, that it's, it lends itself to seeing different game styles be able to be highlighted based on, based on the, the, the speed of the surfaces. Sometimes you have to see players making adjustments based on the, the surface speed. The, the, the tendency has been to go to a more homogenous, you know, consistency in the pace and everything seems to be a little bit slower now. Um, so so I, I think there's, there's definitely a benefit to having more variation. I think the other question about the balls is, is a much easier question to answer. I, I'm a firm believer in the fact that the ATP as the governing body of pro tennis should be working and pushing harder to standardize the ball that's played on hard courts, on clay courts, on grass courts, so that players aren't playing with a different ball week in and week out. And and there is an adjustment that has to be made to playing with those balls. Some balls are heavier, some balls are lighter. Uh, It does make a difference. I, I think that, you know, we're one of the few sports, again, that doesn't have a standardized system for the the ball that we play with. And I think that, you know, there's obviously each, 
each uh, tournament is doing a contract with a specific ball company. And so you would eliminate certain ball companies from that. And I think that's just a matter of business. I, I, I think that the ATP should come up with an advantageous contract for an ATP certified ball for the different surfaces, one for hard court, one for clay courts, one for grass courts, and that they should then, the profits from that should be shared equally amongst the tournaments that are involved that would have to play with that ball based on the surface that they're on. But I think that that's just a logical thing to do within a pro sport is to have a more standardized ball that you're playing with. Great. No, thanks. Uh, that that's that's quite quite an elaborative view, and hopefully, you know, we reach some sort of a conclusion because uh, tennis remains uh, a bit different than other sports. Of course, team sports are team sports, but yeah, the use of ball surfaces, speed, uh, this does capture one uh, the fans' imagination. So, the last question, Dean, as strictly a coaching corner uh, advice from you to me and the listeners here. How can we become better watchers of the game as a coach? Give us some tidbits when we're watching a good match. What should we, pay, we, we be paying attention to? Some fans might be advanced who might already be knowing this stuff before you have even said it, but should we be looking at small steps? Should we be looking at the ball toss? Should we be looking at tendencies where the person is serving, a deuce code? Just uh, give us some, some pointers here, how we can raise our tennis IQ as a watcher. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say a couple of things. I think that I think that one is to be aware of court position. You, you should notice throughout the matches because often one of the first things that you'll see players change uh, when, they're, when they're struggling tactically may be court position. Maybe court position moves deeper in the court or maybe court position comes closer to the court. But <laughs> being aware of and noticing court position adjustments is, uh, is a really big thing. And then I think that, uh, that the patterns of play, recognizing as much as you can the consistency of patterns that players are trying to create and, and what's going on. I, I think the mo- one of the most obvious ones that's become pretty clear lately in tennis is when you see the players that are moving very deep to return and you'll see. The, the other player is countering that by trying to serve in volley right away. Um, those kind of adjustments and, and being aware of those as a spectator just makes the sport a little bit more interesting to watch without a doubt. I think also being aware of the, the shots that set up the points and not just the shots that finish the points. I think that as spectators, people often hone in on the last shot of an exchange rather than being aware of the, the shot, two shots or one shot or three shots earlier that created an advantage for the player that put him in a position to then finish the point. Yeah. Just like those things for say, me are pass before the pass, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, you're exactly right. And also, also in basketball, basketball is a, a great, example of you know if, if you're sometimes it's really interesting to watch the guys that are moving away from the ball that are that don't have the ball we have a tendency in basketball to always focus on the guys that have the ball 
But if you watch the guys that are moving that don't have the ball, they're creating opportunities for themselves to get open. Sometimes it's interesting in tennis to focus on one player for a few points and watch what they're doing, you know, after they've struck the ball and where they're moving, where they're recovering to in the court and positioning like that as well. Oh, that's, that's, that's really good stuff. Actually kind of gold uh, for this kind of a podcast and the listeners love this. So Brad, thank you very much. I think this was more than I had asked for. You gave you very generous. You gave me close to 90 minutes. Uh, hopefully you have, uh, you, you know, you don't have to drive too, too, too far. Uh, no, you've, for keeping... you've, basic, you, you've basically gotten me home. I'm about uh, 10 minutes from my house now. Right, so ho- hopefully, you know, you, you like the conversation here and we can bring you back on the podcast sometime soon. Yeah, I'd look forward to that.